Welcome to the Clay Young Show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com and on iTunes. Appreciate the love we're getting from you guys on Facebook and on Twitter. And we're even starting to get emails directly to the website podcast225.com. Love the feedback that we're getting. Today, we're going to talk with U.S. Senator Dr. Bill Cassidy. And we're going to get his thoughts on politics, his thoughts on the direction of the country. A little, we'll talk a little bit about the election, the 97% line that he used so many times in the campaign season. And you'll get a chance to hear his, his thoughts on a great number of things, where he came from, his upbringing here in Louisiana, his views on family, his views on politics, his views on President Obama, which I think you will find very interesting as well. It's a good conversation with him, and that's coming up in just a moment here on The Clay Young Show. Quickly here, warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org, warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org. You can log on to learn about the 2015 Smoke em If You Got em event at Ben 77 Bistro in Baton Rouge, a cigar, wine, bourbon mixer, all of that. But the whole point of the event, and by the way, it's presented by Orion Instruments in association with a great number of sponsors. But the whole purpose of this is to raise money to help our military veterans. We've been talking about the Remember the 22 campaign on every show, and it's important to me, and I know it's important to many of you, that we help our military heroes. 22 a day, that's almost a military veteran an hour taking their life. We can do better than that. Learn how you can get involved at warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org. Not a long open today. Just want to remind you to hit the subscribe button for the show if you're an iPhone user, Apple user. If you are not a non-Apple user, you can go to the website and get it there. Don't forget to tell, to tell your friends about the show. We love the feedback we're getting. Keep it coming. Having said all of that, a quick break and then back with U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy here on The Clay Young Show as my phone makes a noise to get into this week's show, too. Back in just a moment. Clay Young here with John Conroy, the founder and owner of Pest Stop Do-It-Yourself Pest Control. This month, this year, John, celebrating 22 fantastic years in business. That's exactly right. Our first store opened in Baton Rouge in May of 1993. Congratulations, my friend. Let's talk about Formosan termites. Oh, yeah, let's do. Those are the bad boys. And actually, that season is quickly approaching. A little bit warmer weather, and you'll start seeing winged critters flying around your house. Uh, they'll be kind of light tannish color, a little bit bigger than the subterraneans. They'll look like it's a two-bodied uh, insect with mm-hmm. long wings. Mm-hmm. And if you're seeing that around your house, uh, especially at night, you want to turn the lights off because they gravitate to that, and you need to come see us. All right, let's talk about that. Where can we find you? In Metairie, we're at 3512 Severn Avenue, right next to the Pepper Mill. On the North Shore, we're at 1417 North Highway 190. That's in the same shopping center as Sherman Williams and Villarie's Florist. On the West Bank, we're on the Palco, just past the Harvey Bridge. And in Baton Rouge, we're at 806 O'Neill Lane. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Joining us now, newly minted U.S. Senator Dr. Bill Cassidy. I shouldn't say newly minted. It's been, what, five months? Hey, man, anytime you're a little bit old like I am, (laughs) they say you're newly minted. You feel Uh, great, man. You feel good. Come on. (laughs) I still like it when I get carded when I go to grocery stores. So so in the first, before I want to get to your time in the Senate, but for so many people who have known you over the past several years i mean you've been on the congressional stage since 2008 and people know you because you're always here talking about issues but they don't know very much about you 
So let's start at the beginning. Now, I know that you're, you were born in Chicago. Is that right? We moved here when I was eight months old. Eight months old. So you're a Louisianan. Uh, absolutely. So let's talk about growing up in Louisiana for a young William Cassidy. Let's talk about why my family moved here. Okay. Um, I, there's a biography of Earl K. Long, and it says that the year is like 1958, and people are moving from around the country to Baton Rouge because of jobs in the petrochemical industry. Okay. That was my family. And my dad had been rolling between states trying to find a job in which a guy without a college education could gain traction. Okay. Friend called, said, hey, move to Louisiana. You can sell to those who work in the petrochemical industry. He did. He got traction, made a future for himself, and by golly, his son is a United States senator. And his other sons are all successful. Yeah. That is the power of these energy jobs in my family's personal history and in that of many others, which gives me this incredible appreciation for those kind of jobs. So where'd you go to high school? Where'd Terra. you go to school? You went to Terre High. So you grew up in Baton Rouge, went to Terre High. And what was that experience like? Really good. We won state championship my senior year. We may have been the team. In fact, I think we were the team with the worst record ever to win a state championship. I forget, we may have finished either 4-5-1 or 5-4-1. and one or five, four and one. how'd you pull that off? Tommy Calandro, who's still in town, yeah. was an all-state running back. He was out the first four games. Mm -hmm. He came back, and we didn't look back. And uh, may have tied once after that, but Tommy was just an incredible athlete. And uh, with him in our backfield, that's when we took off. And What'd you like in high school? I mean, what, what, what were you into? Were you into sports? Uh, well, I mean, what, what was your thing? Well, my faith has always been incredibly important. I became a Christian, so, you know, prayed to receive Christ when I was in ninth grade and remained active in Bible studies. And uh, Young Life started in Baton Rouge at Terra High School in Broadmoor yeah. that, when I was a junior, I think. And so uh, that was an activity, played a lot of sports. Uh, other than that, pretty typical, or maybe including that, pretty typical teenage what years. What sports did you play? Uh, high school football, basketball for a year or two, uh, in a, you know, kind of uh, club sports around town. Yeah. So lifted weights. And then you ended up at LSU. Yep. Pre-med. Pre Pre-med. And let's talk about your time there. Uh, good. LSU, uh, I have a great sense of gratitude towards our public universities. Uh, we didn't have the vision or the uh, whatever to go off to school, and, and I went to LSU, met a lot of people, studied really hard, and got into med school. Uh, and um, uh, and those, those professors prepared me and then went on to LSU Medical School in New Orleans, and again, just an incredible sense of gratitude towards public universities. What shaped your ambition? As a kid, kids are fired up by so many things. What shaped your passion, passion to get into medicine? You know, I didn't know if uh, I even wanted to go to college, although my parents were dead set that I would. And uh, when Why? I, was, uh, I just didn't see the point. So, you know, when you're a teenager, you're not the smartest person in the world. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so uh, when I was a senior in high school, they thought I had cancer. Turns wow. Out, turns out it didn't, but I had lymph nodes pop up all over my body, and uh, and my parents were very worried about this. You're a teenager, think, oh, yeah, they think I might have cancer. Of course, my parents are all wigged out, as I would be with one of my children. Yeah. Uh, but it took me to see a series of physicians, um, uh, Dr. Gordon, whose son Stewart still practices in town, and Dr. Stone, who's a general surgeon, Dr. Kahn. But Dr. Stone did a lymph node biopsy, and um, as I went through a battery of seeing a lot of docs, 
I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> this is something that would be fulfilling if I went into it. I still had some instinct then that I would find fulfillment through serving others. And I'm sure that relates, you know, how God kind of worked through my faith. So based upon how they helped you, what you saw, what you learned about what they did, it intrigued you. More than intrigued me. It gave me a reason to want to study and to go to college. Purpose. A purpose. A purpose-driven life, we all know, is one which uh, is, is just what we aspire to. Mm-hmm. And that filled, fulfilled, you know, wow, this gives me a sense of purpose, a reason to go to college. And, man, I took off. So many kids today miss that. They don't get to find their purpose. I mean, I think purpose is more important than anything else because your happiness, your contentment is tied to it. And purpose can outweigh money when you're deciding on what you want to do with your life. You found it based upon a situation that was serious. I couldn't imagine going through that with one of my kids. And out of that, look at where you are. Uh, Just kind of talk with me about that. Stay right there for a little while. In terms of what? In terms of forming your purpose based out of that adversity. Well, I think God uses events in our lives to give us a sense of direction. certainly hasn't mine. And I'm not always saying they're positive events. I mean, you know, they thought I had cancer, but frankly, (laughs) again, it didn't impact me. When you're a teenager, you don't really have a sense of mortality, and I otherwise felt okay. So uh, it was my parents who were, of course, uh, uh, distraught. Yeah. Um, but, But that exposed me to... Uh, a group of folks who were very kind to me yeah. and, and who obviously enjoyed what they were doing. And, and that's, when, uh, that's when I got my sense of purpose, if you will. Sure. But probably the broader sense of our purpose had already, been, had already been established. My parents had been involved in service organizations. They modeled for me how we are... How to, to do it. Yeah, how we're to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. Uh, my parents brought me to church, St. Luke's Episcopal, very regularly as a child. Uh, so, so I think that the, 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 the ground had been tilled and the seeds were planted, and that's what it grew up to be. You know, I've known you now for about well, over seven years, almost eight years, and I don't think people know how passionate you are. You are one amped up fellow, and I don't think people often get that about you because in conversations you get fired up. Uh, why don't you? Well, people don't see that, or do they see it and talk with you about it, or do you think people know that about you? I don't know. When you see me in committee and somebody's saying something that just, I'm just sitting there thinking, this is the United States of America, and this should not be the case. Yeah. Uh, probably they see it then. But when you're a physician, you've got to modulate your emotions. Sure. You may feel passionate for a patient. Yeah. You're just concerned about them and understand they're upset and there, there may have been something bad done or maybe something great, but still they're in terrible shape. You, you, you cannot reflect that. Yeah. You have to bring a sense of calm and be oil on water. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that you're not seething underneath. Sure. But boy, when you see someone destroying their body. Or, or maybe a disease is destroying their body. Oh, yeah. My wife was telling me last night the patient she became most emotional about was a 23-year-old woman with children who got breast cancer. And after getting breast cancer, the husband leaves her. Now, Laura was <laughs> what a, a piece of crap he is. Absolutely. She is a retired breast cancer surgeon. But, but you, you know, she couldn't let her sense of emotional connection with what was happening with this woman destroy her ability to look at her in a way that would allow Laura to care for her health in the best possible way. To serve without being emotional. Exactly. Which doesn't mean that when she went to the woman's 
through the course of through through the through the course of her life that she wasn't deeply moved. Sure. But at that moment, you have to control those emotions. Laura is so passionate as well. She is she is Surgeon General. She the general part is correct. Don't mess with Laura Cassidy. Uh, you you spent twenty years at Earl K. Long before moving on to LSU. Um, and it, well, how long? How long had Earl K. Long been in the LSU system while you were there? Well, the residents have been rotating since it opened. Okay. So if um, the hospital opened in 1968, I think, mm-hmm. or something like that, and then uh, I went to work there, I, I rotated through there as a medical student in mm-hmm. 1981. So it always had had a relationship with the university. At some point, LSU took over management of the system, and actually, I kind of forget when that was. I think it was probably after I returned from Los Angeles. So I came back on faculty with LSU, but I was practicing at Earl K. Long Hospital in 1990, and then LSU took over management probably around 1994. What impact? I mean, you you were basically serving, for the most part, a poor black hospital constituency. What, what, what did that experience teach you? What did you gain from that, grasped from that? Well, you and I have talked about this away from microphones, but I just kind of want to ask you about it on the show here. Well, one, I'm, I'm not sure. In, in one sense, we're, um, we're all alike. Yeah. We all have the same hopes. Yeah. And, and some people might be in tougher circumstances than others, but fundamentally, People uh, have the same hopes and desires for their family, for their children, the, 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 you know, the security, yeah. uh, freedom from disease. Uh, I just saw a patient of mine, a fellow who... Are you still seeing patients? I still see patients. Okay. Um, but I just saw, you know, I was taking my mother someplace this morning, and a fellow walks up to me and introduces himself, and it turns out to be one of my former patients. Um, when you're at the LSU system, you end up caring for people who are inmates, mm-hmm. and he had been in jail for 34 years. Uh, and he's out, and he's doing great, and he's a citizen, and he's contributing to society, and he's... Um, uh, having ill health, and so we talked about it, but there's a physician who's very good who's seeing him now that he's free. And so, uh, you know, most people are good people. They may have done something terrible that ends up putting them in jail, uh, but once you get them off drugs, they are good, good people. Put differently, sure. we're, we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. That's right. Now, some people's sins are so gracious, egregious that they end up in jail, and by golly, I'm all for being, people being punished for what they do wrong. But when you work at Earl K. Long Hospital, you just recognize that people are all have the same hopes and aspirations. There may be some difference in education or income, but sure. basically we people are connected. Are we are we are we are God's children. So you you're at Earl K. Long. You've got a wife and children. You decide to run for the legislature. And how long were you in the Senate before you decided to run for uh, the House seat? Well, Jay Darden uh, left. Left to go. He left. To go, he became the um, he was Secretary, Secretary of State. Yes, I think in 06. 06. So that's when I ran. Probably took office in 07, and then ran for so served a couple ter- a couple years. Mm-hmm. Got reelected in uh, 07. That was a, a you know special election, then a regular election, right. and then ran for Congress. So you go to Congress. What motivated you to want to be in Congress? Well, there had been a spe- Richard Baker left office. That's right. Early. And folks had asked me about running in the special, and uh, my wife and I prayed about it, just didn't think it was the right thing to do. And Don Cashew ended up winning the seat. Don won, good man, um, and won the seat, but he's a Democrat. And when Don went there, Pelosi was kind of at the pinnacle of her power, and, and there were some key votes that 
um, Don had supported her on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, heck, you know, I don't like the direction of the country. And uh, I'm not sure this is good. Pelosi's now in power, and she's going to be, you know, running roughshod over ideas that I think are not only conservative, but right and better for the country than the direction we're going. And Don was supporting her. And so when folks approached me about running in the general, my wife and I reconsidered, prayed about it, and came to a decision that indeed we would run this time, and we did and won. And the, you were in the Senate, uh, in the in the uh, the House of Representatives, which I think is probably like p- politics's version of a marathon that just keeps starting over and over and over again. You win. And then you've got one year that you're not running, but you're basically raising money while at the same time working to represent your people in your district. But in the following year, you're running for reelection again. So you're basically serving a 16 month term because you're you're so bracketed between elections. How difficult was that? So the founding fathers set it up so that you run every two years for precisely that reason. Yeah. You are always trying to connect with that voter and letting the voter know that you are there. Now, that's why spending bills have to originate in the House, mm-hmm. because, by golly, if you're going to raise taxes, you better be connected to the voter. Uh, so, And if there's an issue that just kind of flames across the country, um, it's going to arise in the House of Representatives because it is the representative who is going to be knocking on the door and someone says, what about this? And then he knocks on the next door, what about that? And so the, the Founding Fathers showed great genius. Uh, so on the one hand, yeah, you're... Well, you got water here? Yeah, I got some water. I okay. Just, uh, so on the one hand, indeed, you are always having to get out there and connect, and that's a good thing. Yeah. That's the way the... Now, you might say, well, man, isn't it wearing? It is wearing. Yeah. And so retire. <laughs> you know, they didn't also make it up so that you're going to be there for 100 years. We got some people who've been there for a hell of a long time. Well, you get some folks, but if you look at it, the American people have had little patience with Congress for a while. Yeah. So if you go back, uh, if someone was elected in probably 04 and was still there, they would probably be in the top third in seniority. Mm There has been incredible turnover for the last 14 years. Yeah. There is a group, say Pelosi, who has been there for a long time. Most folks have, have, have been elected and have either moved on or been defeated, but it's become a little bit more of that citizen legislature that I think our founding fathers envisioned. I want to go into some of your, your political paradigm, but we're just kind of moving through this timeline to work our way towards today. You're in the House of Representatives. Uh, Mary Landrieu is coming up for re-election. She has slayed a number of Republicans over the years who have been backed by the machine and coming around again. And your name pops up as a possible candidate. Why did you decide to get into the Senate race? Well, again, same reason I ran for the House in the sense that when and and it's a family decision, you can't do something like this unless it's a family decision. But when Laura and I looked at it and said, we don't like the direction of the country. Uh, we feel like Barack Obama is taking us in the wrong direction. And all these energy jobs, for example, that attracted my dad to move here from Illinois and created a future for him and a future for me and a future for my children, he's opposed to our energy jobs. He's trying to kill those jobs. And although Senator Landrieu would oppose him on that particular issue, in general, she supports him on everything else. Yeah. And so if I think 
that it's going in the wrong direction. At the time, it was thought that if Senator Landrieu was defeated and I won, then that might be the difference between Republicans having the majority or not having the majority in the yeah. Senate. Let's do it. Now, folks said, well, you got to give up your congressional seat. I didn't run for Congress to be a congressman. I ran for Congress to help serve my people and change our country. Huh. And so, heck, if I think I can better serve the people I represent in the state and serve my country, then move on. There was a lot of contention in the uh, in the election that went on and a lot of the debate back and forth. And the biggest thing that that was said about you is that you are a racist because of comments that you made about President Obama. I want you to speak to that directly. Yeah. Someone asked uh, Landrew, well, what did he say that was racist? And she goes, well, he called him by his last name. <laughs> Wait, I'm indicted because instead of saying Barack Obama, I said Obama. Um, you know, you know, I can say Young instead of Clay Young or Cassidy instead of Bill Cassidy. It just, well, I call you by your last name all the time. Exactly. <laughs> and by the way, normally I would say President Obama, President Obama, yeah. then Obama. Yeah. But, but, you know, at some point people understand president is the antecedent. So I think that was pretty thin gruel. Uh, Did it ever bother you? Um, um, in, there's two ways to answer that question. Uh, people are going to slander, and they're going to look for vulnerability and a way to get people to dislike their opponent. So that was their attempt, and I understood that. On the other hand, it is irresponsible. In our state, there's been tremendous progress, more progress to be made, but tremendous progress in terms of us understanding, just as I learned at Earl K. Long, um, we were all created by God. And it should not matter what race you are as you attempt to serve one another. And so for someone to disparage that, uh, I think it's wrong. Let me tell you something. I have to know someone is a racist before I use that word. And I'm ra a racist can come in any color, right. white, black, whatever. And we throw that around way too easily. So I want to address something specifically with people asking me about supporting you and and, you know, why are we friends? The first time we met was the year you ran for Congress. And a friend, of, a mutual friend of yours and mine, Miles Williams, uh, asked me about supporting you. And I said, I really don't give money to people I don't know. I want to meet him. And he set up a meeting. And we sat at the Starbucks in Perkins Row in Baton Rouge for the better part of an hour. And we talked about a great number of things. Because... Thieves and hustlers can hide behind the letter next to their name in politics. OK, right. every person who's a Republican is not a conservative. And don't give me this crap that every Democrat is all about the people. It's a hustle for a lot of folks. I know the man. I know what you did for people after Katrina. I know what you and Laura did for people of for the people of Haiti. OK, after what went on down there. I know what you do in this community. And by the way, man, um, I, if you will, have grown in my conservatism as I have seen the bankruptcy of the other solutions. And we can see folks, you know, liberal programs that were started in an attempt to serve folks and how it has destroyed many lives. Yeah. Now, we can look at different things, negative social indicators sure. that have resulted uh, with, um, but, but chief among them would be, for example, government dependency in which if somebody earns more money, they actually lose money because they lose the, uh, the, they lose the, um, uh, the government services that, would, that, that they would otherwise get. Sure. Now, that's bad. You yeah. Know, we as conservatives, but we as people, want everybody to be independent. 
to achieve their fullest potential, not to think, well, heck, if I take a job, I'm going to lose this benefit. Well, you know, we need to get to a place where, like you said, it's about solutions. I've got friends who are Republicans. I've got friends who, who are Democrats. I care about people who get the job done. That's really the bottom line. But I want to ask you about something. There are two realities happening here. The unemployment rate in America right now is 5.4 percent, the lowest it's been since 2008 when this recent recession was going on. I think that's good. But I'd like you to reconcile that with the fact that 93 million Americans are not in the labor force. And that is a massive number that's at an almost 40 year high. And among women, it's 50, uh, 56 million women are not in the labor force. That's a 27 year low. So we have more people working but fewer people are working. Help me understand that. So workforce participation is at its lowest level since 1978 or something such as that. Right. And so of those folks who actually are looking for a job, the unemployment rate is down you know, to 5.4, 5.54%. On the other hand, if you, were to, if you were to say, wait a second, in 2007, workforce participation was whatever it was, 80%, mm-hmm. and now it is 68%. What would be our unemployment rate if we had the same workforce participation now as we did then, and that 5.4% would be more like 8%? Now, this is all the top off my this is all off the top of my head, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that is that when they look at the number of people working, they the, the statisticians include part-time work as well as full-time work. Now, going back to why I think conservative solutions are better. The president's health care law, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, has disproportionately hurt the employment prospect, uh, prospects of lower-wage Americans. Um, and it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you are somebody who's working for 8 bucks an hour and your employer now has to give you a $3,000 benefit, which would be health insurance mandated by law, or pay a penalty for $3,000, well, that's going to increase his expense or her expense of hiring you uh, substantially, roughly by a fifth, if instead he converts you from a full-time worker to a part-time worker or even lays you off. He avoids or she avoids that increased expense. Mm-hmm. So what has happened? For the lowest quintile or the lowest fifth of workers, they have had an increased number of part-time jobs relative to full-time jobs, and their unemployment rate is the one which is highest. Now, that is a bad solution. If this quote-unquote liberal solution has led to uh, a single mom having to have two jobs instead of one, both of them part-time, and she still doesn't have insurance, that's a bad solution. So what's the proper role of government in fixing some of these problems? So, so if you will, the proper role of government is to set the guidelines. Yeah. you got to stay within these boundaries. Yes. So, for example, you can't claim that a drug has great benefits and sell it with great benefits. No, you've got to actually prove it has benefits before you can sell it. But once you prove it has benefits, sure. you can sell it. Sure. Now, that's the way that you know, the regulatory environment should work. What, what is wrong is when the government says, okay, you have to sell this product, you have to sell it in this way, you have to charge this price for it, and when you fashion the product, you have to fashion it with this design. That is prescriptive, which basically takes the entrepreneur's ability to create a better product mm-hmm. and, and makes it basically a function of a government utility. That stifles and uh, puts the government in control of our lives. That's a bad thing. Let's take, for example, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right? 
it is such a conundrum because while the healthcare system is in need of some repair, there are aspects of it that need to work better. Having recently had to care for an elderly relative who has, sent, has since passed on, you see some of the some of the parts of this that just don't work. However, the the way to make it worse is to cause people to lose their jobs in your effort to fix it. So how can both sides, the Democrats, the Republicans come together to address the problem without creating a larger one? Well, we may have the opportunity. The uh, Supreme Court is ruling on something called King versus Burwell. Mm -hmm. Uh, It appears that the administration implemented the subsidies illegally. The Supreme Court is ruling, but a plain reading of the law would suggest that the administration gave subsidies in a way that run contrary to the Affordable Care Act, um, or the Unaffordable Care Act, as I call it. So if that's the case, in 30-some-odd states, the exchanges will be gone uh, unless Congress steps in to do something different. How do you address address the, the millions of Americans who are without health insurance? What is a solution to that? What, what is an answer, if there is an answer, if this is not it? Well, if, the, if, if King v. Burwell goes against the administration, the president, and it's the president's going to veto any attempt to repeal Obamacare. Right. That's not going to happen. Right. He's going to repeal any attempt to do away with the taxes. He's going to repeal, you know, I can go down the list. I've been saying that for years, that he's going but go ahead. As Paul Ryan says, President Obama is not going to repeal something called Obamacare. Uh, he's not going to sign that, that legislation. So that means that Congress has to come up with something within those confines. Which would, be, which would look like what? Well, one thing you can do, and which Republicans have all in one way or another proposed, is you take the money that would ordinarily now be going for patients under Obamacare, and instead of um, the way it's currently distributed, you could take that same pot of money, and uh, for those folks who are not receiving um, insurance through their employer, sure, you could give them a tax credit with which they could purchase the insurance they wish to have. Right. Now, the problem with Obamacare is that there's some folks who will never sign up. for what, They live under a bridge. You know, for some other reason, they will okay. never sign up. But you can also create a mechanism where a state could have control of its own insurance market instead of the federal government having control like it does under Obamacare. You give the state back control. And that state, those legislators and governor could decide that someone uh, that the state could automatically enroll folks. But isn't that a, just a smaller bureaucracy? Isn't that just a smaller version of, of the that's like a, a, a mini burger under the president's health care law? Obamacare tells insurance companies what kind of product they must have. Therefore, it's telling the patient what she must pay. Mm-hmm. There's a woman who stopped me in Jefferson Parish. Her name is Tina. I love the story. She goes, I'm 56 years old, and I've had a hysterectomy. And I have no children. And she's getting worked up. And she's going, I'm paying $500 more a month for insurance, $6,000 a year, and I'm paying for obstetrical services and pediatric dentistry. That is wrong. I can't afford it, and I'm paying for things I don't need. So in the president's health care law, they are mandating that people buy certain products they do not need. So therefore, that elevates their cost and they can no longer afford the insurance. So, when, so, so let me back, so finish so, the question. Mm-hmm. So if you say to the insurance companies, we're going to go back like it was before Obamacare. To, I'm sorry, to the, uh, to the uh, states. Mm-hmm. The state is going to regulate the insurance company. And the state, 
under you know the way in Louisiana, for example, had relatively few mandates, sure. and the cost of insurance was substantially less, mm-hmm. and people could purchase the insurance they wished instead of the insurance that they were forced to buy. Now that's putting kind of guardrails on, but letting the market operate within those guardrails. Unlike Obamacare, which not just puts down guardrails, but it tells you how to drive your car, what car to drive, and how fast to drive it, and how much to put gas in, how much to pay for the gas, et cetera. So that's the difference between the two. There were so many. There's two other parts of this, and then I want to move on. But there, I believe, if people have jobs, they can get health care, right? Is that fair? If they're working, well, if, it's, if, it's a, if it's a well-paid job, you're going to have health care. Okay. If it's a minimum wage, so job, if it's a minimum not. wage, probably not. So then, then that creates the issue. What do you do if it's a part-time job, a minimum wage job, addressing that? And all of the discussion about the the creation of the Affordable Care Act, uh, the details, the discussions you and I are having right now, and there's uh, there you go, the details we're talking about right now, you don't catch those because of the back and forth, the the partisanship, the, the partisan yelling that goes on. So people don't g- gain a fundamental understanding of how something works. So part one of my question is how much damage is done? Let me take the first page off of that. That's my guideline here. The, how much damage is done when the rhetoric is louder than the details? First part of the question. And the second part, specifically for Republicans, they have been muted in an effort to put out what the alternative to the Affordable Care Act is. Why is that? So first, what happens when rhetoric is greater than detail? Because mm-hmm. you don't learn anything, you know. The voters pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Now, voters have lives. Sure. They got to pick up their children, take them to school, go to the grocery store. Their husband's going to be a little late. So maybe that which the husband was going to do, he's working overtime. She okay. has to do now. So she doesn't have a lot of time for detail. But she's going to figure out sooner or later who thinks more like she does. And that's who she's going to vote for. So I actually, so the rhetoric, it can get really loud sometimes. And there can be a distraction or a distortion that, this goes on for a little bit. By and large, that voter, she's pretty smart. And for example, when I told folks that Senator Landry supported Barack Obama 97% of the time, they understood, wait a second, Barack Obama tried to kill my job at cap and trade, did kill my job with a six-month moratorium. Now I'm paying $500 more a month for insurance benefits, which I do not wish to have. And by the way, the government's intruding on my life as I never wished for it to intrude upon my life. And I can go down the list of things I'm, I'm unhappy about, and she supports him 97% of the time. But that generally will resonate with people who are possibly not going to vote for her or people who would never vote for her. I don't know. I, I mean, you're, as opposed to whom? What, what I, group I, are we leading, I, leaving I, out? Well, just period. I mean, she's going to get a Democrat vote that's going to be with her regardless because she's a Democrat. They're a Democrat. They're going to vote for her regardless. And no, I, I mean, no, the, no, the, no, I'll, the, I'll tell you, I've had more than two different. I had a great experience down in the bayou. Okay. This guy walks up to me. He goes, I'm 75 years old. Yeah. Just became a Republican. Yeah. He goes, I was going to be an independent, and I thought, hell, I'm going the whole way. (laughs) And that fellow now understands that there is one party for jobs and another party that may care about jobs. That's not their primary concern. There's one party that thinks that developing America's natural resources helps create those jobs, and that's a good thing. 
and another party that says, hold on, we're not going to develop those natural resources because we're concerned about carbon emissions. I can go down the list. Yeah. Now, it isn't rhetoric. This fellow started off probably voting for Democrats for, until he was 70. Yeah. And now at 75, he's changed parties. Well, most of the registered voters in Louisiana are registered Democrat. Yep. Uh, so it was almost two to one, but the number of independents is rising because people don't want to leave and, as he said, go the whole way. Um, but but going back to the point about the, the, the rhetoric during the campaign or the talk during the campaign, she tried to paint you at this as this elitist who was unconcerned about the common man who was getting rich off what he was doing from LSU. And but on the other side, you tied her to a president who is not very popular in this state. It's strategy. I tell people, if you don't like it, then don't look at politics. It's the way the bread is baked. But if you could say something other than that about why the country is because you said earlier you didn't like the the direction the country is going in explain that like take us through why you say we're headed in the wrong direction well i do think there's a big difference between the two parties right now okay Uh, there's one party which is more concerned about carbon emissions there's another party more concerned about the american family having a job and um, drill down on the job thing. How are they different as it relates to the middle class American family having a job? Keystone XL pipeline. Could you ask for a better example? Yeah. That would create 40,000 construction jobs. Blue collar jobs. But they say that's temporary. Those are every, not. Unless it is the Great Wall of China, every construction job by definition is temporary. Right. And so I'm in a hearing in D.C., and these two guys come up. They are presidents and vice presidents of these craft unions, uh, pipe fitters or such like that. And the guy said, um, I get so mad, and I'm quoting him, get so mad when people say these jobs are temporary. My guys work two, hour, two weeks a year on one job, 80 hours a week. They go to another job and work 80 hours a week. Then they take two weeks off, but they need those hours for a pension plan. You have to have a certain number of hours per week. In order to qualify. Sure. And by the way, when they're working 80 hours a week, they're getting overtime. Mm. And that allows them to take those two weeks off. Uh, they want to take a hunting season off and go hunt. But they pay for that by working overtime. They said, I, you know, speaking then, again, and quoting, we don't like it when folks say, oh, these are temporary jobs. Of course jobs are temporary. And then you move to another. Mm-hmm. But by the way, when you, we found, just like my dad, when he moved down here when I was eight months old, that temporary job creates other jobs because that fellow who has to drive from Baton Rouge or Shreveport up to wherever he's going to be to help build the pipeline may decide he needs a new truck. And he's gotten a really good job with time and a half or two weeks, and he's going to now have the money to pay it. So he and his wife agree he's going to pay the truck. And so the car dealer does a little bit better. And the wife decides, well, heck, you know, we're going to go buy the children some new clothes because we're doing pretty well this year. And so the fellow selling the clothes down the street does better. Uh, and so, you know, she makes some other decisions like that because they're, they're just doing better. She gives a little bit more at church, and now the church hires a child youth minister. So you have a spill-out effect. My dad sold insurance, but he made his living because of the energy industry. That's what they don't want to talk get about. Get people to work. Get Absolutely. people working again. What is your, what is, when you think President Barack Obama, what comes to mind? How do you describe him? Not, not at, at a political lectern, just you and me sitting here talking. When you think about President Barack Obama, what do you think? 
I think President Obama um, well uh, uh, <laughs> um, this isn't a Rorsch test so um, let me give a little bit more of a considered answer um, I think President Obama wants to reshape the United States of America into a different vision of how we got here. That sounds like a political answer. It sounds like a canned answer. Not canned at all. I, I, I mean this so deeply. Then explain it. Um, the most important thing for a family is that that family has somebody making money you make money, your marriage is more secure, or if you're not married, you have a little bit extra for your children. You don't get on government dependency. And by the way, if you need a safety net, God bless you. But we all know that greatest potential is realized if people can live, as you said earlier, with a sense of purpose. Right. And people have a sense of purpose when they are working. God made us to work. I think the president, when he accepts an annual GDP growth of 1.36%, and brags about it and says we're doing better. And we have the percent of people who are not participating in the workforce higher than it's ever been. And that lowest quintile of workers now working part-time instead of full-time. When he's happy with that economy, something's wrong with that. And we know what can make the economy better. If we developed America's natural resources, uh, built the Keystone XL pipeline, opened up drilling in the Outer Continental Shelf, if we begin to, and I can go uh, deregulate instead of upregulate our industry, not encouraging them to move their plants to China, but encouraging them to stay here in the United States, we would create jobs for those working families. He doesn't care. He's more concerned about carbon emissions than he is about that family having a better job. And by the way, if they're struggling, he wants to give them more food stamps and benefits and this and that. Let's just tank them up because it's a fair trade-off. You don't have a job because we're trying to discourage energy because we want to cold down carbon, but we'll make it up to you by giving you some government benefit. I think that robs their, that family of that purpose and of that potential and of the stability that comes when folks are waking up every morning, going, committing themselves to a job, coming home with the feeling good because they've made some money and able to put some uh, food on their family's table. Harry Reid and Democrats of that ilk say that they want to fix the economy. They want to take care of middle cl the middle class, but the Republicans are only looking to take care of their corporate buddies. What's your response to that? So since the president has taken office, income inequality has dramatically increased. Wall Street is exploding, and labor participation is at an all-time high. I think I was told recently that the average family's net worth has decreased by about $3,000 since 2007. Now, you tell me, are the, are, and basically these are all President Obama's policies, so you tell me, <laughs> who's taking care of the fat cats and who's, and, and, and who's kind of turning their back on the policies that would actually benefit these American families. How does this now change under the Republican Congress? So when the House, the, when the American people spoke in 2010, the Tea Party erupted and said, we've been taxed enough already. It changed on a dime. The dialogue in Washington from how do we spend more to, my gosh, we better take care of the national debt. And we better start treating tax dollars like we would our own money, with some concern about how they are spent. By the way, since then, 
there's actually been more growth in the economy than less. And um, um, we've gotten somewhat of a handle on our national spending. I want to ask you about the Social Security Administration's comments here recently saying that Social Security trust funds are going to be depleted by 2033. Uh, That's pretty alarming, and I think Americans are just really starting to learn how bad that is. Your thoughts on that? So it's all related to growth. Yeah. I just had an editorial published in the Wall Street Journal, and we point out that historically from, um, don't remember off the top of my head, but for like the last 70 years up until 2008, the average growth in our gross domestic product is about 3.5%. Right. Under President Obama, it's about, been about 2%. If we had growth between now and 2030 of 3.5%, as we historically have had in our gross mm-hmm. domestic product, you would take care of the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare trust fund. You would not have to cut benefits. You continue benefits as they are, sure. but just because more people are working and earning more and therefore paying a little extra taxes, not because rates are higher, but because they're making more money, then you make both solvent. Yeah. Growth heals lots of problems, which goes back to when the president is willing to sacrifice economic growth in order to restrict carbon emissions, not punishing those who are making money on Wall Street, but absolutely punishing those working families. By golly, that's wrong. How can company? I want to ask a. You brought something up, so let me stay on this line. A Harvard and Dartmouth study, Dartmouth story, says that since 2000, it seems as though the reports have not been as reliable ha- as they had been previous to that, that it was kind of an overcooking of the books, saying, oh, yeah, it's not so bad, but upon a recent examination, it has been worse than we've thought for the last 15 years. Well, it's certainly not been good since 2007. Right. And so... Uh, but they're and- saying the details coming out have been more optimistic than they really were, than they really should have been. Over the last 15 years? Yeah, since oh. 2000. They're saying that the information got a little shaky after 2000, and then it was a flowery picture, but it really wasn't flowery oh, I at totally all. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Because clearly the seeds for the 2000, the, the Great Recession, were planted in the years before. Sure, so, sure. And people were, people were living a little higher than they could have been because they were taking second mortgages on their homes. Right. So totally agree with that. I want to transition a little bit here to terrorism. Uh, it is it's since 9-11, every American has a part of our sensibilities that thinks about the, the peril that people would like to put our country in. And ISIS is the, the most recent large threat. And I'm sure you're familiar with James Comey, James Comey's comments about how the ISIL threat, ISIS threat in America is. Uh, more dire than people think. A direct quote from him is that they are they're recruiting here. They're recruiting young people by way of social uh, via social media and trying to find people who would otherwise be members of their group. And a quote from him is, "It's like the devil sitting on their shoulders saying, kill, kill, kill.' That is alarming. Uh, what do you think about the way we're handling terrorism in our country right now?" There is um, a concerted effort by the federal government to monitor people who go to Syria, mm-hmm. who might be radicalized, and who return here. 
um, and thank God for it. Um, so we have to recognize that there is a threat among us. Um, this is going to be a this is going to be our generation's version of the Cold War hmm. that will go on for decades. Uh, it is a war with radical Islam, and um, and uh, and those who claim that this is the way that the Quran should be interpreted. Uh, so. Um, it's just going to be our challenge. How do you defeat that? I'm a fan of Sun Tzu's philosophy about war and his purview about winning it, and that you fight wars to conquer the enemy, either by force or by deception. How do we conquer that? It's a belief system that is permeating so quickly around the globe. What constitutes winning the war on terrorism? There is a example we can look at from history. Okay. In the 1920s and 30s, communism had captured the imagination of many people. There's a book called Witness by a fellow named Whitaker Chambers. Yeah. And it talks about how in the highest echelons of the U.S. government, people had permeated who actually answered to Moscow. Mm -hmm. But this was true across Western Europe. Yeah. We can see that countries like China became communist. Eventually, that ideology, that belief system. It was atheistic. Mm -hmm. It was antagonistic towards American principles. We found that that uh, became, was seen as bankrupt, and now communist countries have McDonald's in them. Okay. Yeah. So radical Islam uh, is, um, uh, has the seeds of its own destruction within itself. Uh, Elaborate. Jesus says that a house divided among itself cannot stand. Mm -hmm. uh, so here you have Sunnis killing other Sunnis right. just because that Sunni doesn't believe as the first Sunni did. Right. Uh, not to mention Sunnis killing Christians and Shias and Shias killing Sunnis. And that's a that's like Iraq. Iraq is, is you know there's Kurds, there's Shi there's the Shia, there's Sunnis. I mean all of these divisions. I think you're right there. What about recruiting so many young people? These two. Young guys in Texas, uh, one was 30, one was 34, and the FBI had been watching them, and they were aware of the seeds of radicalism in these young men, and they were warning that there's a possibility that uh, one of them, uh, what is his name, Simpson, uh, his first name is eluding me, uh, was, was on his way to Texas to try to break up this event that was going on. What do you think about all of these despondent directionless young people who are being snatched up by these charlatans who are in this terrorist organization. I will go back to the earlier part of our conversation. First quote a proverb, the people who have no vision shall perish. So, and you mentioned at the outset, uh, purpose is more important than money. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, on the other hand, purpose is often given when people have a good job with a family structure and a community within which they integrate. Uh, so there will always be discontents and people with problems and who, who uh, outliers who are going to be attracted to, you know, something which seems attractive. Oh, my gosh, let me go out there. They're carrying guns around and they're getting a lot of attention. I want to be big. Mm -hmm. We can't account for folks who have that kind of bent. On the other hand, the broader thing I would go back to is our country has always given people purpose. 
and you've been given purpose because you've been either you had a good job, you've been involved in your faith community, you've had a good family. Uh, that's the importance, by the way, of having uh, the traditional American values that we think of. That's the, that's the beauty of them. I think if we return to that sort of society where people understand that I can achieve what I want to achieve, yeah. that folks won't, there'll be fewer people looking for something else to do, and they'll be looking more for what is actually constructive as opposed to destructive. There's always going to be outliers. Sure. sure. Always. Yeah. And we'll always have to be vigilant. For some time, this will be our version of the Cold War. Elton Simpson was a young man's name. You know, you're right about that, that there's they would be the exception more than the rule. What do you think about Baltimore? What's happening there right now? Well, a whole constellation of feelings, right? Um, uh, you and I were speaking offline and, yeah. I, and, and I just thought you've had some great thoughts. Uh, um, it appears that the young man who, was, who died, um, that uh, what we know we don't, you know, what we've been told, not what we know. Yeah. What we've been told is that he was possibly arrested without probable cause. That's sure. the allegation. That he was uh, shackled so He's that carrying he, a switchblade, I believe. But apparently it was legal according yeah. to the prosecutor, and he was put in the back of a van, but shackled in such a way that he could not keep from sliding around, and then allegedly was driven in such a way that he would slide around. I personally believe they beat the hell out of him, but I'm waiting. This is me speaking personally, but I said to you off the air and I'll say it here on that if these officers, three of which are black, so so much for just the flat out racial aspect of this, if they are guilty of doing this or proven guilty of doing this, this to me is not an indictment of police officers everywhere. Absolutely not. Um, just like absolutely not. And so um, and by the way, I've learned to say what I've been told, not what I know. And so let me just couch that. These oh, sure. You're a U.S. senator. I get it. These, these fellows are. And plus, you don't want to say something here that becomes a part of that that there. So, no, it's, but it's understood. It, but if it turns out the allegations are correct. Yeah. That is wrong. Yes. Uh, uh, but as you say, uh, it is. If, well, let me let me say it is better to first recognize people as individuals, not as groups. Yes. That police officers have incredibly difficult jobs. Thank God for police officers. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, we do not countenance, nor do good police officers countenance, sure. um, um, a misapplication of force Absolutely. to someone who is in custody. Um, so uh, it's important to kind of take a deep breath, step back, and recognize these are individuals. These are not groups. The passion of that mother who went out there to get her son who was you know involved in some of this and she she said i saw an interview she did the a, a couple of days later she was more afraid than angry because she did not want him to be involved on the other side and she says i may need the police to protect me i don't need you causing problems in that way now granted whether this kid does that or not law enforcement still has to do their job but I don't think she's the exception. I, I would assume that there are many single mothers in communities like that who are fighting to keep their, their sons out of prison. There's an African-American, and I mentioned he's African-American because it's pertinent, a police officer in Shreveport, a friend of mine, we had dinner and he invited him to join us. They're good friends. And he says that his message to his community is that that guy in blue is there to protect you. Now, his skin may be a color different from yours, but his uniform and his badge means that he is there to protect you. Now, this gentleman is a homicide detective and, uh, and just a stand-up guy. 
and he is aware that mistrust of those who are there to protect makes it harder to protect. Yeah. Uh, great guy, great message. And you know, he says, you know, the guy may not like you otherwise. Who cares? But he may not like you just because he doesn't like you. <laughs> On the other hand, his job is to protect you. He is a professional, and he's going to profession. He's going to he's going to protect you. So just be aware of that. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, my legacy: a man of faith, a good husband, a good son, a good father, and did unto others as he would have them do unto him. When Love you- the Lord his God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul. When you look at uh, where we are as a state, as a city, and what do you think? Are you proud? Do you think there's still so much work to do? What thoughts cross your mind? You know, Jeb Bush said recently, I thought it was good. He goes, when you do something positive, that just creates avenues for more positive things to be done. Something like that. Yeah. Louisiana's come a long way. Now, we got a long way to go. Sure. But St. Paul described it as going from glory to greater glory. So if we can create a society where young people grow up here and they decide after they finish college they're going to stay here, and then, and then we have this vibrant community where then they, you know, whatever your background, like mine, where we came from another state, but found our opportunity. If we're a state of opportunity for folks, um, uh, that would be incredibly positive. I think we made a lot of strides there. We have more to go. I look forward to hopefully seeing that happen. What are you most proud of? Oh, my marriage. <laughs> We've been married 25 years, and my wife's a wonderful person. And, uh, and so, and of course, as every married couple, we've had our struggles at times, and yet um, we love each other deeply and have wonderful children. And um, so I, I just really feel blessed. How long do you want to do this? Uh, uh, well, define this. Politics. Be in the Senate. So there's two thises there. Um, if you mean uh, how long do I want to feel a sense of purpose at serving my fellow man, serving my country, serving my state, um, hopefully giving glory to God by my actions, I want to do that until the day I die. Now, in terms of how long do I want to be in the Senate, I haven't thought about it. Uh, I didn't get elected to the Senate to be a senator. I got elected to the Senate to serve my state, to serve my country, to serve my fellow man, to try and do something that makes our country a better place, as people before me have done and given me all the opportunity that we have in this country but not in others. Well, we appreciate you being here. Senator Bill Cassidy joining us here on The Clay Young Show and on iTunes on podcast225.com. Back in just a second to wrap things up. If we could show you the newly redesigned 2016 Acura ILX, we'd open on a tight shot of our signature Jewel Eye LED headlights piercing through the darkness as a stormy fog rolls in. Next, we cut inside the cabin, panning over the dashboard to the available dual panel control system, both of the high-tech screens glowing, awaiting command. Then we move across the sleek lines of the ILX's redesigned exterior. Light falls against its aggressive curves as its 2.4-liter engine revs with anticipation. Finally, we'd slowly zoom in on the ILX badge, and then poof, it's gone. It's 8-speed dual-clutch transmission in full effect before charging out of view. But because we can't show you any of this, you'll just have to see the lightning-quick ILX for yourself. Come into your local Acura dealer for a test drive. The new 2016 Acura ILX. Catch it if you can. Visit Acura of Baton Rouge, 13550 Airline Highway, or get information online at AcuraBR.com. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. 
Well, there you have it, our conversation with U.S. Senator Dr. Bill Cassidy. Hopefully that was an opportunity for you to gain some understanding into how he thinks. He is a conservative Republican, and you can tell by the way he answers questions and his view of the country and the job being done by the president. As I was watching him answer the question about the president, you could tell that he really wanted to be careful and use judgment in how that answer came out. And when people are thinking and you're doing an interview, you don't interrupt them. You just kind of see what happens, you know. So that was interesting. I enjoyed the conversation. As you heard me say, I've known the guy for a while, and I do think he's a good guy. You may not agree with him on everything, but it's politics, man. Nobody agrees 100% on anything political. It's just the way it goes. Again, thank you for listening to the show. We appreciate the downloads that we're getting. Hit the subscribe button. If you're an Apple user, we really, really want you to hit that button. It'll pop right into your podcast app, and it's just as easy as that. Don't forget the Warriors weekend, Sunday, May 31st. At 5 p.m. in Baton Rouge at Ben 77 at Smoke Em If You Got Em 2, the 2015 version. And it is going to be excellent. You can learn more about that at warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org. Warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org. You can also pay attention to learn about the golf tournament that's going to be taking place the very next day, June 1st, at the University Club in Baton Rouge. All benefiting military heroes. Get more info at warriorsforfreedomlouisiana.org. Have a good one. We'll talk with you next time on The Clay Young Show here on Podcast225.com and on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.